0: I don't know what your testimony was like in coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but for me, I had walked many years according to the patterns of the world. I love the world. I learned everything about the world. The world taught me everything I wanted to know. The world taught me what to value. The world taught me how to speak. The world taught me how to behave. The world taught me how to relate to other people. The world was ultimately what I worshipped. Until the day came when the gospel of Jesus Christ arrested my heart. And I would love to say that in that moment my life got a lot better. It really did, actually, objectively, it got a lot better. But subjectively, it was very difficult. Because for the very first time, I felt the weight of conviction. I felt the heavy hand of God on my life as I continued walking in the patterns of this world. In an instant, I went from being at home in this world to being an exile. And we've been talking about being and living the exiled life. Our home is heaven. This is not ours. Being an exile in a world that's not our own, it comes with its variety of trials, it comes with heartache. It comes sometimes with excruciating misery. Last week, Mark gave us a glimpse of the joy of being exiles in a hostile and oftentimes uncomfortable world as we looked at the book of 1 Peter. He taught us how Peter helps us exiles to learn how to rejoice, to be happy, and to exalt and to delight in what God is doing in us and through us while in exile. While in exile, it's tough to endure the accompanying trials. But Peter says that we can experience joy through it all, but that it's contingent on what we value. Paul or Peter reminded us that we can rejoice if we value our faith in Jesus, if we rejoice and value our love for Jesus, our desire for Him to be glorified, and our eventual homecoming, whereby we will be united perfectly with Him and He with us. Is that what we value? Our inexpressible joy is anchored to our worship of God. Do we have affection for Him? Or are our, heights, our hearts inclined to Him? If our passions and desires are for His purposes, then we are able to rejoice in exile. But there's another dynamic that is at work that we must be aware of as exiles. And that is our proclivity to wander from God. The proclivity to wander from God and to serve and worship idols, to to worship other things more than God. That's why we pray that prayer. Bind my heart to you, O God, for I am prone to wander. Because this world, we are susceptible to growing affections for the things of this world. We, We find what the world offers very attractive. Life may be easier if we just merely conform and just go with the flow. Matter of fact, I might not even experience trials anymore if I just conform and go along with what this world has to offer. If you have visited other countries, you, you find things in those countries that meet your heart's desires. There are certain smells that you just love. And you think to yourself, wow, why, why can't I just wake up to that kind of smell at home? Right? We love the smell, we, we, we love the food. Now, for some of us, we could care less about the smells, we could care less about the food, we could care less about anything else. What we want to know is, well, what are the bathrooms like? <laughs> and again, that all just points to what it is we value. What it is we value. And, and while we are enjoying what that country has to offer, our affections for our home may begin to wane. And we may even completely defect and give our allegiance to that country. Now the difficult reality of living in exiles is the temptation to defect from God and to worship idols, to grow in affection for the things of this world rather than the Lord. God expressly says, you shall love the Lord your God and you'll have no other gods before me. And herein lies the heart of the problem. We are to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our might. And the heart of the problem then becomes a problem of the heart. John Calvin says our hearts are idol factories. Another author says our idols become sinful allies in our opposition to God. Our hearts are prone to wander. It's the gracious work of God then through regeneration to give us his spirit, to give us his word, to give us prayer, to give us fellow believers to protect us and to keep us from wandering. It is a heart for the Lord and a love for his purposes that enable us then to rejoice and to endure. But a defecting heart will bring about unfaithful living and inexpressible misery. And this is addressed clearly in Ezekiel 14. Ezekiel is a prophet to the exiles in Babylon during the years that the nation of Israel is coming to a complete end. Ezekiel was both a prophet and a priest. He and his wife, along with 10,000 Jews, had been taken away, had been taken captive to Babylon around 597 B.C. And through the nation's trials, many of the people crumbled and defected from God to serve and worship idols. They accumulated false prophets who told them what they wanted to hear. These prophets deceived the exiles. He says that they encouraged the wicked not to turn away from their evil ways. And Ezekiel, on the other hand, he warned that their beloved Jerusalem would be destroyed and that the exile would actually be prolonged. So, needless to say, Ezekiel wasn't the most popular or the most liked of the prophets. He wasn't telling them what they wanted to hear. In chapter 13, these false prophets are condemned for disheartening the righteous and, again, encouraging the wicked not to turn away from their sins and be saved. And in chapters 14 and the rest of the book, God judges the nation by utterly destroying Jerusalem yet with a promise to uphold his covenant. And so here in verses 1 through 11 in chapter 14, God diagnoses the root cause of such judgment. The people have defected and they worship their idols rather than him. God reveals clearly the susceptibility and the severity of defecting from him so that we would know the way of escape and the promise of hope in him. And here's the setting. Verse 1. He says, "...certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me." We have a group of elders that have come around to Ezekiel. We have no no understanding at all. There's no revelation that tells us why they came to Ezekiel. We just know that they, they have come to Ezekiel to inquire of the Lord. And the word of the Lord Came to me, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Right here we get a clue that this is not going to go the way they expected. They came with a question and received an indictment. That's what we see in these first five verses, that they came with a question and received an indictment. These men have taken their idols into their hearts. They've set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. They are not sincere men. They do not approach God with worship, but rather they are loving other things with all their heart, soul, and might. This would be the definition of false worship. With all that we are to worship God, they were worshiping their idols. They loved idols. And these the word for idols may be translated pejoratively as dung pellets. Okay? And it's fitting when you think of worship being what you value and the contrast between the holy creator God and dung pellets. Right? And it does go to show the stupidity and the blindness of worshiping idols. The word taken here may be best understood as something one pursues by way of planning and forethought. And the tense of the verb helps solidify that this was something they did intentionally they focused their attention on something other than God and they pursued it. These were not fleeting thoughts which came to them momentarily and then they dismissed, but these were thoughts that they entertained in the heart as seductive and attractive. They've grown to yearn for them and to consume their thoughts with them. That's what he means when they said they set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. They didn't take the love they had for these things serious enough to do away with them. But rather they sat that affection in front of them in order to stumble and to sin. And when he talks about the fact that they set it before their faces, what he means is that they are consumed in thought with their idols and they continue to cultivate their affection for them. They actively behave in accordance to their love and passion for that idol. See, this is how we can make sense of the heinous thoughts and actions in our day. What seems so unreasonable to us is reasonable to others because our reason is directly linked to what we worship. And this explains why Israel would even defile God's sanctuary through the slaughtering of their own children as sacrifice for idols. Later in Ezekiel. Make no mistake. What you love, what grabs your affection and consumes your thoughts and pursuits, will affect your reason and your behavior. They pursued their idols in thought, speech, and in their behavior. And it was only natural that when we consider the face, that it was considered to be extraordinary, revealing relative to a man's emotions and a man's attitude and a man's disposition. If I believe that getting a raise at work will give me what I think I need, it will give me security, it will give me self-reliance, it will give me self-promotion, then I will have set that raise as my idol. I believe it will give me what I want. Foundationally, idol worship is always really about me. I value that for what it promises to give to me and I value what it promises to give to me. If I don't like what it promises to give to me, I won't worship it. What can I get from that idol? If I'm constantly dwelling on this raise in hopes of what it will do for me, then what do you think is going to happen if I show up to work and I do not get that raise? My emotion, my mood, my disposition, my speech, and my behavior, all of it will be affected. See, we live on the cuffs of our sleeves. We live out what we worship inside. Richard Baxter says it this way he says, As it is idolatry in the unhappy worldling, I just love that phrase, worldling. Are we a worldling? He says, as it is idolatry in the unhappy worldling to thirst after the creature with the neglect of God, and so to make the world his God, so doth it savor of the same heinous sin to lament our loss of creatures more than the displeasure of God. What Baxter is saying is that it is abhorring that someone laments the loss of their worldly pleasure rather than displeasing God. That they would rather displease God in response to the loss of their idol. See, what changes your emotions? What changes your attitudes? What changes your thoughts? What changes your speech and behavior? It is your passions that are at war within you. Or is it your holy affection for the Lord? The elders had come so blinded by their affection for idols, they couldn't even see the hypocrisy of what they were doing. They had come before God while they were defecting from Him, to inquire of Him. They were susceptible to worshiping idols, and they did not understand the severity of their situation. Thus, God has a dilemma, which He expresses to Ezekiel in a rhetorical question when He says, should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Should Should I be brought to care about what they are concerned about while they are actively defecting from me? Should I listen to their questions? As we'll see, God will answer. But he's not going to answer on their terms. Therefore, speak to them and say to them, God turns his attention from speaking to Ezekiel to the message he now has for the elders. Verse 4, thus does the Lord God. Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets a stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols. This is what I want to say to him. This is what God says. First, he says this. He wants them to know that he will answer them personally and not through a mediator. I, the Lord, will answer. Second, he will not answer them according to their requests or their questions. But rather, he will answer them according to the multitude of idols. Again, they came with a question. But they're receiving an indictment directly from God. Make no mistake, this is personal to God. And he will indeed be directly involved. This personal relationship dynamic is further developed in verse 5 when God gives the purpose for such action. He says that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me from their idols, through their idols. He says I do this in order to arrest the hearts of Israel who are estranged from me through their worship of idols. He says I will lay hold that word basically means to seize or to take hold of, sometimes preparatory for further action. It is therefore often used of capturing people or towns or grasping weapons to use them or musical instruments to play them. In verse 5, the Lord expresses his intention to seize or to coerce the hearts of his idol-worshiping people. This is a gracious thing that we want to not just gloss over that our God, the majestic God, the creator of all things, as as the psalmist in Psalm 8 is so in awe about, that the creator of all things, who are you that you would be mindful of us? And so mindful of us that when you know that we are defecting from you, that you take that personally and that you want to be personally involved. You know, we've all gone to stores and, and we talk to a, a person who's dealing with us at the store and they don't seem to be dealing with us very good. And we want to complain. And so we want to talk to the manager. And, and then they say something like, well, the manager doesn't want to talk to you. <laughs> you know, and basically what that communicates is, well, the manager doesn't care. The manager just doesn't care. Our God cares. And he cares about where your heart is. He wants to arrest your heart. He wants to grab hold of your heart. He wants to take hold and he wants to make it for him alone because that is and therein lies the greatest of happiness, the greatest of joy, the greatest of security. When you are worshiping him. And God wants you to worship him out of love for you. And out of for his own glory. There's no point here dealing with the externals when the disposition of their hearts need to be arrested. Remember, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. See, for, for any counseling or discipleship to be biblical... To be pleasing to God, it, it must address the heart. When we are interacting with one another, when we are engaged in each other's lives, with our Bibles open, when prayer to God, it is for the intended purpose of making certain that we're going after each other's hearts. When we parent, we're going after the hearts of our children. When we disciple one another, we're going after each other's hearts. We're addressing that issue. We want to make certain that we are not wandering as we are prone to do. It's fine if somebody wants to stop a particular behavior. But the reason for wanting to stop is very important also. It's important that we address the heart. And this is why God's word and prayer must always be a part of our discipleship and counseling. It must never be neglected nor Should it be seen as secondary when it comes to truly helping people? It is the Lord that searches the heart. It is the Lord who tests the mind. It is the Word of God that discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is in the purpose of a man's heart. It is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. The heart of man must always be guarded, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. So we're not satisfied with mere externals. We want moral behavior from a heart that worships God. We want, we don't want, to be or to disciple others to be, to be whitewashed tombs full of dead bodies, bones, and unclean. These elders, they didn't get what they expected. They came with a question and they received an indictment. But by God's grace, in verse 6 we see they were indicted and received the way out. They were indicted and received the way out. He says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. Now God speaks to the whole nation, the exiles and those who are still in Jerusalem. And His answer to them is one thing, one way, that is, repent. They had defected and turned away from God to idols, and he's asking them to do an about-face. He wants them now to turn their backs and defect from their idols and turn to him in holy and complete devotion, affection, passion, and worship. And this repentance requires a change in values and affections for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We must value God and His kingdom more than anything of this world. The kingdom of heaven, it's like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and he covered up, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, And the love of the Father is not in him. See, valuing God more than the world will affect our disposition and our attitude. Listen to Paul's testimony in Philippians 3. He says this But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's two verses. And it is pregnant with his testimony, his attitude, his disposition of a heart that is affectionate for the things of God, that he values the things of God far more than anything in this world. Idols leave us thirsty, but Jesus is the fountain of living water. Idols leave us hungry, but Jesus is the true bread that satisfies and fills us. Idols destroy us, but Jesus saves us. Idols are misleading and deceptive, but Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Idols cannot deliver on their promises. Jesus always keeps his promises. Our treasures on earth, they decay through moth and rust, or thieves break in and steal, but the unsearchable riches of Christ will never decay or be stolen. Idols disappoint. They let us down. Jesus will exceed our greatest hopes. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Idols offer temporary joy and passing pleasure, but in Jesus' presence there is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Christ is better than idols because all things were created through Him and for Him, including your heart and your life. Christ is better than idols because He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Christ is better than idols because the light of the knowledge of the glory of God comes only in the face of Jesus Christ, Christ is better than idols because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is better than idols because Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. And Christ is better than idols because God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God, Father. It is no wonder that Paul then would say, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That is the surpassing worth of our Lord. Now God has graciously diagnosed Israel's problem of idol worship. And he provides for them the solution of repentance. And recognize the surpassing worth of God and pursue him with all your might. Let the wonder of the gospel consume your heart and move you to worship and shape your priorities and choices. By God's grace, the people of God received an indictment and were given the way out. But in verses 7 through 10, we see they were given the way out and received a warning. He extends the scope to include any of those who've pledged their allegiance to God in Israel, including the strangers who sojourn in Israel. See, one of the distinct activities of idol worshipers is to consult and listen to prophets that accommodate their worship of idols. This is characterized in 2 Timothy 4 when Paul says, "...have itching ears, they accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions." And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. God says, I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. See, God's reaction to their double mindedness is expressed in these three terse announcements. Again, this is personal, and God is personally involved. First, he says this, I will set my face against that person. That phrase involves a clever but ominous recasting of they set before their faces. See, this attitude represents the antithesis to set the face upon, which is often used in Scripture when God describes the fact that he looks upon somebody with favor. But in this case, it's the opposite. And it is often followed by the phrase, to cut off. See, the idolaters against whom God has set his face must prepare for the full force of his enmity if they refuse to repent. Second, God will make Israel an example of the fate of idolaters who fall into the hands of God. Ezekiel expresses this notion with two words. He says this, I will make him a sign and a byword. The word sign, that just denotes an event or an object that is intended to communicate a message or to motivate behavior. It is usually associated with attesting signs designed to legitimize a person or to promote faith in God. But when used negatively, then it serves as a warning to onlookers. It becomes a warning of what not to do. And in this instance, Israel's fate will provide evidence of what God's disposition toward idolaters really is. And it would then be designed to motivate observers to recognize God's presence and activity. The word byword is similarly negative. And the word byword is, is the idea where what you do then ends up becoming a word that by just using the word, people know what you're talking about. So for example, if you were to refer to somebody as somebody who babbles, okay, We get that from the Tower of Babel. Right. And it was an indictment and it was a punishment. And so we would use that word. In this case, the name Israel will become proverbial for divinely imposed disaster. So when something was utterly destroyed, you would just say, hmm, Israel. That would be the idea. As a result, they will know that He is God. See, we need to understand that while saving people to be His own does indeed proclaim His majesty and glory, so does cutting off those who defect. Make no mistake, God is much more concerned about His reputation than He is ours. He will keep His house pure. If one is so hard in heart that he will not repent, he will be cut off from God and His people. And so we must have an appropriate fear and respect for God and for who he is. We must be sober-minded, understand our susceptibility to, and the severity of, defecting from the Lord through our idols of the heart. This is, again is why we must be involved in each other's lives. Why the author of Hebrews says, exhort one another every day as long as it called today, that none may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We are susceptible, and it is severe to harden our hearts. Are you that type of person to others? And do you have people around you that you invite to be that type of person to you that is engaged at such an extent that we're addressing our proclivity, our our susceptibility to wander and to love other things more than God? There is no doubt that every knee will bow to God. God. The question is, when? When? Will it be in the day of judgment? Or will it be now? For today is the day of salvation. God warns Israel the consequences of not repenting. And in verse 9, he turns his attention to the false prophets. These false prophets have chosen to dispense lies to the people, and they are accountable for what they have done. It is part of their punishment that God deceives or persuades that prophet. It's not dissimilar to what is said in Romans 1. If you suppress truth, if you reject God, you will be handed over to a debased mind and one that welcomes falseness. God answers insincerity with insincerity. And by giving the people lying prophets who proclaim the people exactly what they want to hear, God ensures the people's judgment. They get their just dessert by way of false prophets, and they shall bear their punishment, verse 10, the punishment of the prophet and the punishment of the inquirer shall be alike. Both will be held accountable. This is their warning for refusing to repent from defecting from the Lord, but just like our God, our gracious, our holy, and our just God, we see in verse 11 that they were given a warning and received hope. the perfectly just punishment would be, and the purpose and its intention would be, that the house of Israel may no more go astray from me, nor defile themselves any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God, declares the Lord God. See, punishment is used to instruct us in the way we should go. He uses counsel to teach us, and he uses punishment. He'd rather that we learn by counsel, then by crucible, God advises in Psalm 32, 9, Be not like a horse or a mule, without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. Must understand that when we use the phrase, well, I'm just one of those that has to learn the hard way. You have to understand, that's not a confession of like, you should be proud of me, or you should think high of me. That's a confession of foolery. That's just utter foolishness. God says, be not like that. Be not like that horse. Be not like that mule, which needs the bit and the bridle. But listen to counsel. Through repentance, that rupture between deity and nation that was caused by Israel's sin and completed by his judgment will be reversed through repentance. God will and does punish defection. And that was meted out perfectly at the cross, And the cross bids that we come and die. We die to ourselves. We die to our idols. We value him more than anything else that we might live. Now, how do I keep myself from idols? How do I protect and guard my heart? Well, I love John Calvin's response to this. You know, John was a very verbose man. But this was his answer. Follow God. Follow God. Identify your own idols. Ask good questions. Pray the prayer of Psalm 139. Lord, search my heart. Try me. Know me. Test me. See if there be any way in me that is wrong and lead me in truth. We ask questions of ourselves. What do I not have in my life that if I only had, I believe that would make me happy? What do I now have that, if it was taken away, would leave me unhappy or devastated? What is it that I now have in my life that I can't live without? With what do I consume my thoughts and pursuits? And then when you identify those things by the graciousness of God, repent from those affections, repent from those passions, for those things other than God that you have valued more than Him. Repent from dwelling on and pursuing such things. Repent from any speech or behavior that has resulted from such idols of the heart. Be sober-minded. Recognize our susceptibility to worshiping idols. And then cultivate a fear of God by soberly considering His warnings. And also cultivate an admiration of God by constant meditation on the bigness, majesty, and grace of God to cultivate the value of God over and above anything else, I like to meditate on passages that expressly point to the greatness of God and His surpassing value. And one of those passages is Isaiah 40. And as we close, I want you to just listen to the bigness of God that is put on display in Isaiah. Behold your God, Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? All the nations are as nothing before Him. They are accounted by Him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with Him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who's too impoverished for an offering, chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness." Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when He blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare Me? That I should be like Him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of His might. And because he is strong in power, and not one is missing. Father, you are the magnificent, majestic, and glorious God. There is none like you. And you are mindful of us. Father God, when we are tempted to wander... We ask that you bind our heart to you, that we would meditate on the bigness and the majesty and the greatness and the grace and the mercy and the steadfast love of you, our holy God. And may that forever keep our hearts with you. Amen.